Would you turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 13 this evening? 2 Samuel chapter 13. We're going to get to the psalm that we're intending to study tonight, but I want to show you the background of the psalm before we get there. So, um, The psalm that we're going to look at after we look at this background is an individual lament where David laments about his situation. He moves from a time of mourning, sadness, to a time of trust in God, like all laments do. And uh, if you can spot these lament psalms where it begins with mourning and moves to trust, you're going to find that it, that the psalmist begins his psalm with a cry out to God because of some type of trouble. Usually it's become because of some enemy coming in on him. And then he moves to a description of the trouble. And then finally he talks about turning it over to God, an expression of confidence and commitment to God. And uh, so the historical setting of this psalm that we're going to look at uh, has a superscription underneath the, the number of the psalm. And it says that it's written by David while he was fleeing from Absalom. Now, what I want you to understand is when we see these um, superscriptions on the Psalms, we should understand that they're not inspired. Okay, you, you understand that the text of Scripture, similar to the headings over your chapters, a lot of times it says what the chapters are about. Those are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Those are what the translators put in or the editors put in to help us know where we are within a given book so that we can look up at the heading. Same thing is true with regard to the superscriptions. Those are not in the original uh, texts of Scripture, that is, in the Hebrew language, although uh, they were in many of the early translations of the Bible. And remember, the purpose of making copies of the Scripture was to disseminate it to people so that they would understand better what God's Word was about. And so, while they're not inspired, they still are truthful and probably accurate. Okay. The text of Scripture, you can be confident that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is from God. And that's why uh, we seek here at this church to try to exalt the text of Scripture because it's actually God speaking to us. It's not you know, some of the crazy ideas that I come up with, but rather what God has said, and so He puts those into words. But when we come to these superscriptions in the Psalms, this is the first Psalm that has one, you should not think, well, that's not part of the Scripture, so let's just ignore it. But rather, that it's not inspired by God, but still helpful to, to show us some of the background of what is going on. And so the superscription in Psalm 3 that we're going to look at says, written by David, and it is while he was fleeing from Absalom. So I thought it would be helpful for us to go back to 2 Samuel 13 and see what was going on uh, when at this time of his life. Remember, David is the king at this time, and Absalom has uh, ha- has uh, developed some anger, has risen in anger over his brother, and let's see why that is. Second Samuel, Samuel, chapter thirteen. I'll begin reading in verse twenty-two. But Absalom did not speak to Ammon, Amnon, either good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Okay, so now this helps us see where we are. Uh, Amnon was a half-brother to Tamar, and he raped her. And uh, so Absalom finds out about this. David does nothing about it, and Absalom grew in anger toward Amnon. Look down to verse 37, chapter 13, verse 37. Now Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, 
the king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur and was there three years. So um, after uh, Absalom kills Amnon, you recognize the story, he flees from the city of God there. And over time, after he's gone, he starts to gain a following. Turn to chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 4. And this is what he would say to the people. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has any suit or cause could come to me and I would give him justice. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. So David still is the rightful king at this time, but Absalom's starting to to act as king. He's starting to make decisions like a king would make. He's starting to act in justice like a a theocratic king would do. Look down to verse 10. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. This tells you how wide his, his, uh, uh, his influence was over the people of Israel. He was sending out messengers to all the parts of Israel and saying, you're going to hear a trumpet. When you hear that trumpet sound, this is what you need to say. Absalom is king. So he's actually won their hearts over so much. And in another text said he's the um, most... Uh, handsome man that there was on the earth with his long flowing hair, you remember? And, and he would cut his hair once a year and it would weigh something like five shekels or something. And, um, and so he won over the people with apparently his looks and his charm. And eventually he gets the people to start following him. And you, you can recognize how much of a problem this is going to be for his father. Look at verse 13. Then a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel... Are with Absalom. David said to all the servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste, and he will overtake us quickly, or he will overtake us quickly, and bring down calamity on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Then the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. So the king went out, and all his household with him, but the king left ten concubines to keep the house. The king went out and all the people with him and they stopped the last house. Now all his servants passed on beside him, all the Cherethites, all the Pelethites, all the Gittites, 600 men who had come with him from Gath passed on before the king. So David's in a difficult situation, isn't he? His rightful place of authority is in the city of God, Jerusalem. He has rightful authority as God's king in Jerusalem over the people of Israel. And yet, now his son has won the hearts of Israel and David has to flee from his own throne even though he has uh, the power as king, even though he's supposed to have the power as king. So now you can turn to Psalm two or Psalm 3. Psalm number 3. You can see how this will, will uh, I think, help us to see a little bit of what's going on with David as he is fleeing from his son. And let me read this psalm, then I'll show you why um, why this is such an important psalm for David and I think for us. All right, Psalm number 3. I'm going to begin in verse 1. 
This is the Word of God. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying in my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings your blessing be upon your people. Now, if we only read the first two verses of this psalm, it should strike a chord in us of dissonance. It, do, it shouldn't seem right for David to be in this position, in a position where his enemies are overtaking him. Why? Because chapter one, or I'm sorry, Psalm number one, we're told. That, that, that to delight to know God. And this is what David had done. And, and in Psalm number 2, we're told that those who submit to God's King will be blessed. But here we are already in, in Psalm number 3, and God's King, David, is running from his own son. Where's the blessing in that, God? Not exactly the universal reign that was promised in Psalm number 2, right? That he will rule with a rod of iron, and that his reign will be from one end of the earth to the other. That's not what was going on here at all. David's reign is getting smaller and smaller. The scope of his rule is getting smaller, not larger. It's not extending to the nations. He barely has any reign over Israel. And so it strikes a chord of, of disharmony with us, doesn't it? Where's the blessing from God? And what David teaches us here in this psalm is that, that God will protect us no matter what our enemies say. God will protect us no matter what our enemies say. This psalm can be broken down into four parts. First, David's lament or David's plea for help. David's lament. The wicked say that God can't deliver. Verses 1 and 2. David is mourning. He's saddened by what is going on in his life. Because the wicked are saying that God can't deliver him. In verse 1, we see that the numbers, the number of his enemies are increasing. It reads, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Verse 2, many are saying. Now, the New American Standard doesn't bring out the weight of verses 1 and 2 as well as the New International Version and the ESV. The Hebrew text literally translates these phrases, many adversaries, many rising up, many saying, many are saying. You see the, the word many, that there is an increasing amount of conflict against me. And we can understand where David is coming from because we have seen that all but about 600 people in Israel have turned away from him as the king. And they've turned to follow his son, Absalom. His wicked son. They have no concern for God. They have no concern for His laws. They have no concern for God's King. And so His enemies are increasing. But it's not just His enemies who are increasing. Verse 2, we see that they, these enemies are increasing in their scoffing. That their scoffing is increasing. 
Many are saying, of my soul there is no deliverance for him in God. So the result was that many of his enemies and perhaps even his longtime friends were turning against him. They were beginning to question the rightful place of authority that he had on the basis of his coronation from God himself, of his anointing from God himself. Notice the indictments these scoffers give. It's in the it's in the um, quotations. It's in the quotation marks inside of that. It says there is no deliverance for him in God. Notice it does not say there is no deliverance in God. They're not saying God doesn't deliver at all. But what are they saying? There's no deliverance for you, David. Hey, if you're really the king, where's God in all this? How come Absalom's the one who's being blessed, so to speak? There's no deliverance for you in God. Who is this statement and indictment upon? It's an indictment upon both David and his God. That is that God's not delivering you, David, so you must be doing something wrong, and God can't deliver you in a sense. David's not concerned, I would suggest, based on our understanding of his life and desire to please God, he's not concerned primarily with his own name being vindicated, but ultimately in God's name. He certainly doesn't want to be seen as a guy who chases false dreams, but I think more importantly, he wants God's name to be vindicated, God's reputation. And so we begin this lament with David expressing his concern to God that it is a a state of sorrow because of what is happening in his life because his enemies are rising up against him. But that's not where the psalm stops, does it? David turns, like he does in every lament and every psalmist does in a lament psalm, it turns from lament or mourning to what? To trust. And confidence. And that's what you need to see each time we come to a lament psalm, whether it's an individual or a corporate lament, a national lament. That it turns from mourning or sorrow into confidence in God. Look at verse 3. But you, O Lord. Okay, this is what's happening all around me, but this is what you're doing, God. This is what you have done. And so we turn from David's lament in verses 1 and 2 to. David's confidence in verses 3-6. through David is confident that God will deliver him. Why is David confident in that? How can he be confident that God will deliver? There are two reasons. Number one, David knows who God is. David knows who God is. He knows about His character. So here's what he's going to say. Because I know who God is, I know that He can and will deliver me. And then He's going to show us in verses 4-6 through that He can deliver because He's done it before. Okay, so first, David is confident that God will deliver because he knows who God is, verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. So he says two things about God's character, doesn't he? Number one, God is a shield. Number two, God is His glory. David's glory, that is. So first, a shield. Notice how all-encompassing this shield is. You are, O Lord, a shield 
about me or all around me. Now, what kind of shield is this? You know, maybe picturing a almost a barricaded area, maybe a, a metal circular building that's set up around David that he has a shield all the way around so that no matter what kind of arrows are coming in or what kind of weapons are trying to harm him, he's protected. But that's not actually what's going on here. You know, uh, uh, in the scriptures, when the word shield is used, it's used of, you know, usually a close combat type of shield. Sometimes they had the full length shield um, that would reach all the way to the ground and cover their entire body. But this is actually referring to a smaller circular shield that would be used for close hand to hand combat. And here's what God is to David He's a shield all the way around him. What does that mean? One big shield that's circular? No. It means that God is there on every side. He's so quick to move. He knows it's going to happen. He's protecting him from every side. The point is, for David, God is his warrior. God is the one who's fighting for him. God is the one providing the protection that he needs, and so God can, or David can rest in God's protection, can't he? Alan Ross says this, he says God was the only defense that David had, but that's okay because that's the only defense he needed. And so David knows that he will be delivered, that he can be confident in God's deliverance because of who God is. Number one, he's a shield. Number two, he's David's glory. Notice my glory, verse 3, and the one who lifts up my head. The one who lifts up my head. This is the opposite of David bowing his head in shame, like we would expect him to do at a time when he's being dethroned. We would expect David to walk around almost moping because of his situation, to bow his head in shame. But God is the one who gives him confidence for him to lift his head. It is David's glory. Now think of this. From where did David get his glory? That is, where? how did God's glory come upon David? It was as David was on the throne. But where is David now as he's writing this psalm? Or probably sometime after he has, is fleeing from, from Absalom, right? He's, he's in danger. He's not in the palace right then. He's not sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. No, he's away from his palace. The place where he was honored and the place where we could say that God was glorifying his king. Where's the glory now, David? God doesn't come to your rescue. God won't come to your rescue. What kind of glorious king are you running away from your throne? David says, yes, I'm far away from the place of my glory, from the place where God has exalted me a place to, to, to a position over the people of Israel. But you know what? It's not ultimately that position. It is my glory. It is my God who is my glory. He's the one in whom I trust. It's not about my position or my physical location. He's the one who takes me from a time of shame to a time of confidence, lifting my head to the skies from where my help comes from. So David begins with the lament, verses 1 and 2, and then he turns to confidence. I trust that God will deliver me because of who He is. And then secondly, because of what God has done, verses 4 through 6. In other words, David has seen what God has done in the past. And so because he's seen what God has done, he's confident that God can and will deliver him. 
First, in verse 4, we see God as a responder. God as a responder. And then in verse 5, we see Him as a sustainer. In verse 4, He's a responder. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and He answered me from His holy mountain. David knows that God can deliver because he's seen God respond to prayers before. David had prayed in times of trouble at Jerusalem, at God's holy mountain, right? That's where it says in the text that he was when these took place. But just because it happened there doesn't make him any less certain that it will happen away from Jerusalem. But rather that God will respond to him because he's a loving father that wants to respond to the requests of his children, to here to the request of his king. And so what I'm encouraging, what I'd like to, to encourage you with is the reason that you can be confident that God will respond to you in a way that is helpful to bring about your best, okay, to bring about your good, is because you have seen God work in this way before. Because you have seen God work before in other ways. You have seen Him respond to specific requests that you have prayed for. And because of that, in times of trouble, you can go to God and expect Him to respond again. Does God answer your prayers? Perhaps you pray and pray and pray and you don't feel as if God is answering and so you give up on asking several reasons why we give up on praying. There could be because we have a wrong heart. Not, perhaps as James says, we're not asking according to what God desires, but rather chapter 4 says that we're doing it to spend it on our own lusts. It could be that we haven't addressed the sin in our lives and so we are ashamed. And until we address that sin in our lives, we can't go before God without uh, almost an, a hypocritical sort, sort of spirit? There's several reasons why we don't pray to God, but I think one of the main reasons we don't pray is because we haven't seen Him answer before, because we haven't prayed very faithfully before. What I'm telling you is that if, it, if that describes you, someone who is slow to pray or sporadic in your praying you're not confident that God hears, that you would be confident as you see God answer your prayers. That your faith would grow as you see David's confidence in God. God is a responder. He is our responder. We could call Him my responder. God also is David's and ours sustainer. We know God can deliver and will deliver because what He has done. He responds to requests and He sustains us in times of trouble. Verse 5, I lay down and sleep. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. This may not seem like a very helpful verse. There doesn't seem to be really any meat to this. You know, it's not one we'd put on a memory verse card and try to keep to memory, would we? I lay down and slept and the Lord sustains me. But I think if we, if we are careful to think about what's going on here, we will see the value of this verse and why David puts it in here. What are you doing? Think about this with me. What are you doing when you are sleeping? How much control do you have over your life 
to what is happening around you when you are asleep. Okay, how much how much control do you have to what's going on inside your house, inside your country, inside the world, inside the universe? How much control do you have when you're asleep? When you lay down to sleep, you actually, whether you recognize it or not, are forced to entrust yourself to God. I think one of the reasons that God made sleep, that God requires sleep, right? We can't go our whole lives without sleeping. Was to show us that we need to depend on Him daily for His protection. That there are times every day where we are completely vulnerable and that is when we're sleeping. It's not that we don't need Him when we are awake or that in some way we can act outside of His sovereign rule when we're awake, but the point is that it becomes obvious when we go to sleep, if we think about it carefully, that we're not in control. We're not in control of our lives, our health, our family. We're not. Now, we may not understand that very clearly because you and I live in safe neighborhoods for the most part. We have adequate protection. And if you're like me, you have a clean history. That is, you haven't had your house broken into. But I think if, we, if those types of things happen to us, if we had been violated in that way, we, we lay down to sleep a little bit differently, don't we? We recognize that there is some fear as we're laying down. Something could happen to me or my family. We, when we recognize that there are real threats to our life, to our life, I think we would understand this more clearly if we were out on the battlefield like David. One of my favorite miniseries on TV is called Sur- "Surviving the Cut." Surviving the Cut. It's a one-hour program on the training that's required to get into the elite forces of the military, like uh, Air Force pararescue, Army Rangers, Marine Recon, so on. They have one-hour show on each of these various special forces and how you get into that through the training. One of the things that all of these training groups do to the various soldiers is they force them to do their job while they're sleep-deprived. And the reason for this is so that when these men go out to battlefield, that they will be able to push themselves farther than they're normally used to even when they are not able to sleep. Because when you're on the front lines of the war, you have to be able to go longer periods of time without sleeping. Right? I mean, if you watch any war movies, you know that when you're being fired upon or when you're in hostile enemy territory and you're holding your enemies back with a few guns or whatever, that is not the time to sleep, right? You can't fall asleep. And so they teach these men that you need to learn how to push your body farther without sleep so that you can protect yourself and your country. And because sleep is required, when that happens, when that finally does happen on the battlefield, that person is forced to release 
his grip on the power that he thinks he has over his life, doesn't he? So here's what David's saying in verse 5. I lay down and slept. I got, got down on my back. I slept. And then I awoke. Notice this next line. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. Now this could be a spontaneous prayer that David prays right when he wakes up. You know, he's got enemies all around him. Perhaps they could come in at any time and take his life. And perhaps he wakes up and says, Thank you, God, for sustaining me. But it could be that that he's trusting in God as well. He's saying, I lay down and slept and I was confident to awake because the Lord is the one who sustains me. Just to give you another example besides the military one, you know, if you've had surgery where they've put you under, you have the same sense, don't you? That you have to give up control. You have to give your control over to someone else, God, ultimately. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. You see, David knows that God will deliver because God is a responder and God is a sustainer. And so he says in verse 6, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who set themselves against me round about. Do you see why it's so important to know God? You're not going to have confidence in God and what He can do if you don't know God, if you haven't seen Him work in your life before. David's knowledge of God resulted in his confidence in God. Even though all these people set themselves round about him, he had God, remember, who was a shield round about him. And so he was not afraid. He was confident. And so God can deliver because He's God. God has delivered. David has seen it. And David is confident, verses 4-6, through six, that He will deliver. So, here's what David does. Since God can deliver, and He has delivered, and David is confident He will deliver, he concludes his lament with prayer. God, deliver! That's how it concludes, verses 7 and 8. David's prayer. David's prayer for delivery. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. In Psalm 68, 1, Psalmist says, Rise up, O God, and scatter my enemies. Okay, you can picture David hunkered down in a place of refuge with all of his enemies surrounding him and David asking for God to scatter them, to remove them from being a threat. Notice that David has a personal relationship with God. He says in verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. See, his personal Relationship with God leads to his confidence and trust in God. And so he prays to God and, and asks Him to protect him from future deliverance. Now, if we look at the verse, verse 7, it seems as if David's talking about something that has been done, right? He, he does pray, save me, we could say, in the future, O oh my God, for you have smitten all my enemies. But really, David's speaking in the past tense because he's so sure that the future event will take place. And he's using the past tense. I am so sure 
that God will deliver me, that I can say it in the past tense, that you have done it. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. And here's the idea. For you will have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You will have shattered the teeth of the wicked. In time, God, you will do this. I know you will. And what is this striking on the cheek and shattering the teeth? Sounds kind of vicious. And so we have to ask the question and answer, should we be praying um, for evil or judgment to fall upon our enemies? It's known as what theologians call the imprecatory prayer. They're praying that their enemies would be destroyed. Should we do this same thing? And I would suggest to you that when David prays in this way, he's, it's not a license for us to pray for our enemies, for harm to come on them. Because as we studied in 1 Thessalonians 5 a few weeks back, do not repay evil for evil. Okay, So when someone brings evil upon you, we are not to repay it with evil. If we understand what's going on here, we should see this as a plea for deliverance. Now, David is trapped. He's not thinking retaliation. I wish some bad things would happen to these people. He's trapped. And in order for him to be released from this trap, from his enemies, the only way that can happen is if his enemies are disarmed or destroyed. And so that's what he's praying for, really, his deliverance. Deliver me, God. Save me. And the way that you need to do this, in David's mind, is to shatter the teeth of the wicked to smite his enemies on the cheek. What about this phrase, shattering the teeth of the wicked? What does this mean? Well, I think you recognize that David is comparing the wicked to uh, fierce animals. And I, if you were at the Detroit Zoo and a lion escaped, would you be fearful for your life? Okay. Yes, we all would, wouldn't we? Now, what if that lion didn't have any teeth? What kind of weapon does the lion have without teeth? Okay, he grabs you with his mouth, he clamps on with no teeth, and uh, you're just kind of looking around. Could you please put me down? You're starting to tickle me, right? I mean, lions aren't very fierce without their teeth. And so what David is asking is that you break the fangs of these animals so that you disarm them, take away their weaponry. In Psalm 58, 6, he says, O oh God, shatter their teeth and their mouth. Break out the fangs of young lions. That's the idea here. Make them helpless, harmless. And then, verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. The plot of the nations... Remember, the nations rage against God. Psalm number 2, verse 1. They rage against God and against His King. But God has made a decree. God has decreed that His Son will be reigning over the people of Israel. In fact, the people of all the earth. So that those who are enemies of God and God's King actually are futile in their attempts to destroy or to, uh, uh, to dethrone Him. What the enemy does really doesn't have any weight on whether 
we survive or not. It all depends on the strength of our fortress. It depends on the strength of our shield. It depends on whether or not we have a sustainer who will sustain us. And so we can trust in God because salvation belongs not to the enemy. Victory belongs not to the enemy, but salvation belongs to the Lord. Three points of application in closing. Three points of application. Number one, Satan wants you to think that your faith in God is a waste of time. David had these enemies that were saying to him, God's not going to deliver you. Satan wants you to think that your faith in God, that the expression of your faith, obedience, is a waste of time. So you have to recognize that you're going to be scoffed because of what you believe and how you act. And what, how does this scoffing come? What does this look like? Well, it may come from real people like David. It may come from real people who are, who are catapulting real claims against you and against your God. Scoffing against your faith in God may come from worldly ideals. Ideals that are set up and saying, this is the way that a smart, a wise person ought to live, and yet it's opposed to the Scripture. So people look at that and say, well, that's foolish for you not to follow the world system, to not follow the world's ideals. Scoffing against your faith may come from your own heart. Because your heart, like my heart, is wicked and is desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17.9 says, and who can know it? And so, although you can remove yourself, okay, you can barricade yourself from all of the evil in this world, but you can't barricade yourself from your own heart. Your heart will always be with you and it will always be seeking to destroy you. There's a battle that's going on, not just outside of you, but inside of you. The spirit and the flesh, the spirit and the flesh in you are warring against one another. So this scoffing may come from your own hearts, your own thoughts. You fool. Why are you following God? God hasn't delivered you before. Why would He deliver you again? And so what do we do if everything around us and even within us is telling us to give up on following God? We do the same thing that David did. We turn to what we know is the source of true source of comfort and strength and security, and that is God's Word. We turn to what we know is right. We can't follow our hearts because our hearts aren't always right, are they? They often lead us astray. So we turn to what we know is secure, solid, unchanging, a sure foundation. Satan wants you to think that your faith in God is a waste of time. And this will cause you at times in your Christian life to lament, to mourn, to sorrow. But you need to turn that mourning into confidence in God, trust in Him. And the only way you do that is by turning to His Word. Number two, recognize the means of protection that you have. Recognize the means of protection that you have. There will be people, there will be enemies who want your spiritual life to be destroyed. It may not be physical harm that they're looking for you, but you need to recognize where your protection comes from. And it, ultimately, your protection comes in final deliverance from 
the mastery of Satan. That ultimately, God will protect you. That's where your final deliverance comes. So that no matter what happens to you in this life, just like Paul, right? He's going to Jerusalem and there's going to be much suffering there and eventually God said that you're going to be my witness in Rome. So there's going to be much suffering there. Even if Paul's life ended in death, he could be confident that he still was delivered. How? He didn't, he didn't stay living. But he was delivered spiritually. Finally, he was in what, the, what, the, uh, what Jesus calls the churches of the Revelation in Revelation 2 and 3, overcomer. He's an overcomer. He's able to overcome the power of the evil one. You may feel crushed on every side right now because of the opposition that you're receiving. But don't forget that God is for you. God is on your side. And if God is for you, no one can be against you. Romans 8.31 you believe that? you believe that God can protect you and that God will protect you in your Christian life? Do you believe that God has provided a way of escape for each temptation that comes your way? That God is faithful in that? Has not God protected you when you are most vulnerable? Okay, whenever that time is in your life when you are most vulnerable, maybe it was last night when you went to sleep, if He can protect you during the time in which you are most vulnerable, can He not also protect you in the times when you are seemingly least vulnerable? When we feel like we are strong, we got it under control, God can protect you in those times as well, even when we don't recognize the enemies that are, are facing us. Number three, Learn to be confident in God's deliverance. Learn to be confident in God's deliverance. You won't be confident during battle if you don't know God in peace. You won't be confident in battle if you don't know God in peace. Think about the difference between an untrained soldier and a trained soldier. Who has more confidence on the battlefield? One who has gone through various scenarios in boot camp and in training and has been tested and has been spent and has been taken to the limit, is that one more equipped to be confident during the time of battle or is the person who just came off the plane, hasn't even held a weapon, doesn't know what kind of things could possibly face him? Okay, that's the same thing in this Christian life. If you're not trained with regard to what kind of things you might face in battle, if you don't know God in peace, if you haven't thought through many of the challenges that you will face and how you ought to react to those, don't be surprised when you have no confidence during times of battle, when you quickly, when you quickly distrust God, turn away from God, and turn to other means. In other words, if you don't know God, you won't trust God when you need Him most. Confidence in God comes from knowing His character. David knew that God was a responder and a sustainer. Confidence in God comes from knowing His works. David knew what He had done to him before. He delivered him before. And confidence in God comes from knowing Him personally. He is my God. I saw Him work in my life. And so 
You, my God, save me. And when we do, when we have confidence in God, in times of battle, then we will call out to God in prayer. Is that what happens when difficulty comes in your life? Is God your first resort in times of trouble or your last resort? Are you like I often am? You know, a financial burden or challenging situation comes up in the family or in the church and my first thought is, what can I do to make this better? What do I need to change? How can I get enough resources to make this right instead of, God, this is You. Without me or without You, I can do nothing and so I'm turning to You. But instead, we often exhaust all of our resources trying to accomplish, you know, trying to get through this battle. And then when we finally get backed into a corner, when things get too tough for us, we finally call out to God. Here you go, God. This is too much for me. Certainly, I hope you recognize that's better than not calling out to Him at all, right? But that's not the best response when difficult situations come. If we recognize the great power of God that He has at His disposal, then we would not fail to pray as much as we do. Psalm 46, 1 and 2 read, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we won't fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be cast into the sea. God is our refuge and strength. We need to turn to Him in times of trouble. Let's pray. Father, we confess to You because You know our hearts and we don't turn to You first in times of trouble. And we often forget You in times of prosperity. We pray with the, the, um, the writer of Proverbs. Says, he says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Poverty so that I'm not tempted to steal and riches so that I'm not tempted to forget You. Give me enough. Give us enough so that we can get by and so that we can overcome temptation. And when times of trouble come, help us turn to You first and often. We pray that our sorrow would be turned into confidence quickly because we have seen who You are and what You have done. And because of our confidence in what You can and will do, may our hearts cry out in prayer to You. You love to hear your children pray to you. And yet we neglect this great grace that you've given to us, the access that we have so often. And we, we pray that you would convict and convince our hearts tonight to recognize our need for your power and your protection. Save us from our spiritual enemies. Give us final deliverance from the evil one. And give us short-term and long-term deliverance from Him as well. Help us to see that there is no temptation that's given us except what is common to man. And You're faithful that with every temptation You always will give us a way of escape. We love You for how You have designed this creation and how You have allowed for us to come into Your presence. We want to know You more and we want to be more confident in You. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.